Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is founder and CEO of Beta.com, Mark Brown. First of all, YouTube just put out really nice outline about its video recommendation engine. Gave a little history. It basically said that way back in 2011, it optimized everything for clicks and views. Now, what that means is if you wanted to have your video rank highly, then you need a lot of views and you need a lot of likes and just general clicks. Now, the problem is that indirectly it incentivizes clickbait and sensational titles or thumbnails that get people to watch a video, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're very satisfied or happy about it. So then YouTube looked at how much time people were spending watching the video and it used that as the main criteria in order to promote a video. Now, even though you watch a video for a long time, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll end up feeling good about it after you spent all that time. So the upshot of that is not all watch time is created equally. Now YouTube focuses on quality and value. How does it figure that out? Well, uses a lot of user surveys that sends out millions per month. As a result, it now prioritizes content that has a lot of authority that's mostly coming from recognized established outlets. And it's also looking at shares, likes, dislikes, and all those not interested clicks. On top of that, if you have anything that's even borderline offensive or a borderline violation, it's going to reduce how much that recommends it. So take that as a warning. So what can you do in order to optimize your videos for the YouTube recommendation engine? YouTube itself says you should upload consistently. The best way to do that is develop a series of videos that have a consistent title and a thumbnail style, and then end with the call to action to watch more. On top of that, you should always use playlists and end screens. So YouTube itself is telling you what to do in order to get the most views. The way you get the most views is to have YouTube actually suggest to the users to go watch your content. So follow us recommendations so you can get a good recommendation. have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. There's a warehouse in Harleysville, Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia, that's very interesting, and unfortunately, not many people know about. It's the home of the Electronic Music Education and Preservation Project. This is a collection that's very rich in analog electronics that were used during the classic 1960s and 70s era of rock. But it spans from the early genesis of synthesizers going way back to the 1930s and it ends in the late 1980s, just about the time the market was becoming dominated by digital keyboards and computer software. Now, by design, you won't find a computer anywhere in this building aside from a few rare digital prototypes from the early 1980s. Now, what do they have there? Well, among other things, 
a vocoder that once belonged to Kraftwerk, the organ that Rick Wakeman of the band Yes used to record the hit song Roundabout, and the Marshall amp Lindsey Buckingham of Fleetwood Mac used to record the album Rumors. One of the biggest things is the wah pedal that was used by Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock. And things like the Conbrio ADS-100 used to make the soundtrack for Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan in 1982. Plus, there's a big display of Keith Emerson's Moog Modular and the organ that he used to use on stage. Now, the project was created in 2017 as a nonprofit designed to preserve and maintain the invention, engineering, and culture of early electronic equipment. And, on top of it, it wants to tell the stories behind the gear. Recently, it received a grant to finish construction of a new control room for its recording studio, and that's actually going to allow musicians to use this old equipment and maybe find some fresh sounds along the way. COVID really stopped everything in its tracks in terms of tours, but things are opening up again, so if you're in the Philly area, this might be worth a little detour to see. You can find out more at emeapp.org, emeapp.org. It's the Electronic Music Education and Preservation Project. My guest this week is Mark Brown, founder and CEO of Beta.com, which enables sending and receiving digital audio in a clean, simple, and secure way. Mark has an extensive music business background and considerable digital audio knowledge, which has helped him deliver unique insights to audiences around the world. He got his start at Murder Records, Canada's premier artist-owned label, during the mid-1990s. After working in A&R at the legendary London indie Creation Records, then at Alan McGee's Pop Tones, Mark started his own boutique UK radio promotion company off the back of his success with The Hives. For over 10 years, Mark worked with an impressive list of indie rock luminaries, including Wilco, Block Party, Connor Oberst and Bright Eyes, Spoon, Refused, and legends like Tom Waits, Yoko Ono, Booker T, and Mavis Staples. During the interview, we spoke about why radio is still important to an artist, the downside of sending files via email, the challenges of getting music to industry execs and radio, and much more. I spoke with Mark via Zoom from his office in Stockholm. Let's start back at the beginning because I know you have a long history in the music business and I want to hear about it. So let's start where you started. Oh boy, I guess I'll roll back the the clock to say the mid-90s. I was going to school on a small town in a small town on the east coast of Canada and I hated university. And about an hour away, the biggest city, which had about 300,000 people, called Halifax, uh, a lot of bands in Halifax in the mid-90s were getting signed to American record labels, like Sub Pop, the label that Nirvana were on. And people say, well, that's not really a big deal. But uh, if anybody was growing up around then, they would realize that it was very hard to get a record deal in the U.S. for a Canadian band. It was nearly impossible. And so this part of Canada was doing quite well. Like four or five bands got signed to major labels in some part and so I dropped out of university and started working at this artist-run indie label, which, again, doesn't sound like a big deal but today. But back then, it was pretty hard to run a record label. You had to find distribution. You had to actually, heaven forbid, make the records, the vinyl or the CDs. And so I did that for a couple of years. 
And uh, I did a load of different things. I toured with bands as a tour manager and sold merch. We ran a festival. I did loads of different stuff. And then I moved to London, England in 98. And I worked in a record warehouse again, where people would actually go around a physical warehouse and pull vinyl and pack it up and send it to a physical record store, which uh, again is pretty odd for people these days. And then I got my first proper job in London, which was working in the A&R department at Creation Records. And Creation Records is um, one of the most important indie labels in UK history. So the guy who started it, Alan McGee, there's a movie that just came out about him. Um, so bands like Primal Scream, Oasis, Teenage Fan Club, Kevin Rowland from the Dexys Midnight Runners. And I worked there for about a year and a half till they sold the rest of the company to Sony. And then I went back to the record warehouse because I didn't have a job. And then Alan McGee called me up and said, look, I'm starting a new label because he can't sit still uh, called Pop Tones. Why don't you come work here? as my PA and I was his personal assistant for a year. And then he said to me, look, Mark, you're a terrible PA. (laughs) (laughs) What, why, why don't you do my old PA was way better and they took over doing the radio plugging. So why don't you do the radio plugging? And I didn't really know what radio plugging radio promotion was. Um, But then I figured out that basically what you do is you go into radio stations and you try to convince them, to play records. And I'm like, well, how hard can that be if you like the record? And so the first band I worked with was this band, Swedish band called The Hives. And The Hives went very well. I lucked out. And the first three or four records I worked, the bands were very popular. And then Pop Tone sort of ran out of money and I became an independent radio plugger, which I did for about 14 years until I started Beta. Before we get to that, let's just talk about radio promotion, because that, especially indie promotion, I mean, that was the lifeblood of the record industry for such a long time, and, and I guess it's not now, because radio doesn't count. Uh, ooh, that's a good, well, it probably depends who you talk to, because I would think that, say, in the, in the UK is very different to, say, the, the United States, because there's only one time zone. So certainly when I was doing radio promotion, like if you got a play on the radio, everybody had the potential to hear it. Whereas say in North America, I'm Canadian. So, you know, West Coast, East Coast, all those different time zones, it doesn't have the same impact. Um, I would question, I I would agree that radio doesn't maybe have the same impact now, but you're reaching, I would argue that you're reaching different people. So in the case of, streaming getting on playlists that way i think there's it's super important but the idea that not trying to get on the radio and reach people in a different way i think is a bit crazy because i think people do listen to radio in different situations like say you have an old car for example you don't you're not listening to spotify in your car you might be just listening to whatever's on the radio stuck in traffic and you reach different people who do different jobs, different economic situations, different uh, job cycles. And I think, especially in the U.S., a lot of people spend time in cars. So I would argue there's probably still some value in radio. You know, I just wrote a a blog post about an auction that the FCC had in the United States, and they had 174 old stations that they were auctioning off. And it was a combination of AM and FM. And a third of them went unsold which is unheard of. All of the AM stations, nobody took them. 
which I thought is very telling because once upon a time, owning a radio station it was a must for a mogul. You know, if you had money, that's what you wanted to do. Yeah, I, I, it also seems that it's very hard to make money. Like the way people spend their ad dollars has changed. I think a lot of stuff is online. Not necessarily, they haven't moved all their money to say Spotify or something like that, but the way people advertise is different. So that cycle, play records, then a load of ads, then play records. I can understand why that's under pressure. But for example, in the UK, you have so many stations that are run by the BBC. So like an NPR style situation where it's it's publicly funded. You have Radio 1, Radio 2, Radio 2 being Europe's largest radio station possibly. Six music that I know a lot of people listen to online. So maybe the business model is uh, less attractive, quote unquote. But I think the value I think the value is still there. The people, radio DJs are like the original curators, if you think of it that way. People who, like John Peel, who give you context about what you're listening to. And I we can talk about it in a bit. But the series we do called How We Listen, you realize that people aren't getting music one way or another way it's a blending of many different sources and i think radio can be very valuable in that sort of mix all of the metrics that i read say it's still high on the list and in some cases it's the most listened to the most consumed out of everything but again, you have to wonder who is listening and what are they listening to? You know, it's not music anymore so much because that was a driver of radio. And now it's more talk, I would think. In the United States, I don't know about the rest of the world so much. Yeah, there's a lot of publicly funded radio in, in, in Europe. I'm here in Stockholm. So like I, you know, but but I also think what's interesting, what I like about the change is that radio drove so sales and awareness for so long but the problem was that it was it was it wasn't necessarily the best music it was the best music that sounded right in between two other songs and that's what i don't think a lot of people i knew that it was a challenge for me to explain to people a lot of the time that it's really about the, the right song in the right context compared to a piece of press where it doesn't matter how noisy it is if the story is interesting they write about it and so that is one of the things I'm happy about with a, a shift to more streaming is the fact that I think it is substantially people's interests are a lot more diverse than they used to be because they 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 hear about a lot more diverse different types of music from all over the world in a different way and I think that's a positive change for sure. Okay, so you're doing radio promotion and what caused you to stop and do what you're doing now? Well, ra- radio promotion is it, it's fun, but it's very, it's a repeatable process. So you, you're doing the same thing and, and you with varying results. <laughs> and I really enjoyed doing it. But what I started to notice was, is that the, the public got to use platforms like Spotify very early. So, so the public listening solution, digital solution came very early. But people, as you're going to know, people working with music pre-release, sending files back and forth, it's been a messy world for quite a long time. And I started to realize, oh my God, like these platforms like Dropbox, WeTransfer, or even SoundCloud, they're not really built for people who have to send and receive digital audio all day long. 
And I thought, oh, well, I'm the type of guy, oh, this is a problem I can figure out a solution to. And oh, this won't take that long. And then you just go deeper and deeper into it. And then I realized, oh, well, this is what I do now. So it, it, it wasn't like I said, I need to change what I do. It was more that it just evolved into this thing that took on a life of its own. And so I was sort of happy to let go of radio after. I did it for 14 years, I think. So quite a while. I had done my time, so to speak. <laughs> Tell everybody what beta is about. It's super simple. Beta is the Swedish word for exchange. And what we do is we enable anyone to send and receive digital audio files and streams in a clean, simple, and secure way. And it's as simple as that. If you need to send, if you're a producer or an engineer and you need to send tracks to someone to before you mix them, easy. If you're somebody sending a watermark stream to someone pre-release, you can do that. If you're someone who uh, receives a lot of files and streams all the time, it's easy to listen to them on Beta. And, but ultimately, the problem is very simple solution to a very complex problem. Is there a file size limit? No. And the reason why I say that is I'm just imagining myself as a mixer thinking, oh, this is great for getting a whole session in, which may be, you know, a couple hundred meg. Yeah. I find I find people who do who do mixing or want to transfer big files end up continuing to use Dropbox. Okay. But I think certainly from a producer, uh, engineer, mixer, if you've got to send 10 WAV files over to someone, this is the perfect, the classic setup. You've got these 10 files, you whip them over in Dropbox. The recipient has to unzip them, open it up, import them into iTunes. And as you know, iTunes doesn't read WAV metadata. So, and then, and then you've got the email chain going back on saying, oh yeah, I like vocals up, you know, hyphen 10.89. Oh, is that the right one? So we make specifically when it comes to recording and all that, we make that very easy where you upload them. It reads all the metadata in the files. You write the information to the files. So what you know, what you see on the screen is what's embedded in the file. That's very cool. I see that there's a iOS app that just came out as well. Yeah, we're just testing that. So it's coming out in a couple months. And this is a thing that I've found very hard to believe. I, I go to school, I'm in university. And so I needed to get an audio file onto my phone about four months ago. And so we built Beta for Music. And then I'm like, so I was going somewhere, I was walking, I'm like, okay, I'll listen to this lecture that I need to listen to. And I realized to myself, like, I don't even know how to get an MP3 on my phone anymore to listen to it in, you know, some sort of app. And so one of the bi our big goals is to move the sending or receiving of digital audio onto mobile. Because if you think about it, it's very difficult to send and receive and listen to files on a mobile phone. So yeah, so that's why iOS coming in a couple months. Yeah, it's an extra step or two or three that you really don't need to. And if you can eliminate that, well, it's just in, it's on the platform and I can access it from anywhere. That's so much better. You, you know, we have our sort of tagline these days is a create, promote, discover. And so you create music, sending stuff back and forth, promote, you need to send to people. But the discover is based around this idea that as you, again, you're going to know people get a lot, receive a lot of music. So if you work in, in and around the music ecosystem, you're getting files and streams all the time. And if you can't listen to them, if it's difficult, if, if you have to go through all those extra steps, you A, lose time. But B, also, a lot of the time, 
you give up. And that means that something that's super important to me as an artist or a manager that I've sent to someone, even if we've had a good meeting or, had, or, or we've made some progress, if I can't listen to the tracks or you can't listen to the tracks, progress stops dead as far as moving the artist's career forward. And I think as much as we're about sending and receiving digital audio, that's the goal is to make it easy for people to listen. One of the problems that I find with some of the artists, and I work with mostly older artists, is okay, if you're going to send something, do not send an MP3 attachment. <laughs> I, I, knew, I knew you were going to say that. I, <laughs> but are you saying it's, it's sort of an, an older crowd that does that? Yeah, but not exclusively. And, and you're correct. So I do, I do a lot of talks, and I was doing a talk at Goldsmiths University in London on Zoom. And I, I love doing it where you can see everybody on the screen, and it was his class. And I said, I, I knew the professor, the teacher, and I said, oh, does anybody send files as, as email attachments? And the teacher goes, she does. She does. And she explained that she – so, so it's, it, it, again, is not a generational thing that people grew up being used to attaching things to emails. It's, it's still a common practice that people – they don't understand – because that's an effective way to send something to someone, but they don't understand that it makes it difficult for the person on the other end to listen. And the goal is, yes, to transfer a file, but the ultimate goal is for people to listen, just like I was saying. So with Beta, then, instead of transferring a file, I can, can just attach a stream or a link to a stream then? You can, do it, you can do a series of things. So if you wanted to send, say you had a finished album, you wanted to send that album to someone, you were worried about security, for example. So you decide, I'm going to send this person a stream only. You can send it direct to, the, to their email address, and then you're able to track their streams and downloads. Or you can create uh, what we call a universal link, which is like a private SoundCloud link. Or we offer what's called a protected link. So it's a link that you create that you want to send maybe in a personal email, but then the recipient on the other end they have to have an account. So they just sign up for free so you can track where the music is. And we also have a MailChimp integration. So what we do is we make it easy for the sender to share the music the way they feel comfortable with, knowing that the recipient, say you might want to stream, but some recipients want downloads. So we try to make it as flexible as possible depending on what people's needs are. Yeah, I've seen this happen multiple times where someone would send a file to a music supervisor or there was one band that I work with that was trying to get on a festival in Germany and they kept on sending MP3s. And I said, you're stupid for doing this. Nobody in the business does this anymore. You know, just send a link to a stream. And in both cases, once they did that, instant listen. You, you, you are right, but, but, but the funny thing is, so we do this monthly event called How We Listen, and it's based on these interviews. I got really frustrated by, or we got really frustrated by this idea that, say, Spotify or Apple's like, oh, it's all about streaming. No one does anything else. No one discovers music in any other way. It's all algorithms. And we know that's crap. It's like you have friends, recommendations. You go to record stores, you watch on YouTube. And so this is a weekly interview series we do, but we've turned it into a monthly event, and where I have someone on live and I talk to them. What, 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 one of the funniest things is that I, I go through examples from this, this interview series that's been going on for a couple of years, and I put two up against each other. And one of them is this guy in Germany who's, who's a British writer, and he's like, I love streams. And then I flip to the next card, 
and it's someone else in Canada who does radio, and they're like, I don't want any streams. I want downloads. Yes, right. So, so that, again, is the problem. Like, everybody has their own way of finding music. They have their own way of listening to music. And the key is, you're right, streaming is good, is good and reliable, but you need to be prepared to give people the option whatever it takes to get them to listen ultimately. Well, I think this is really important for radio, for instance, because there's been a whole thing going on about the quality of radio, mostly because they're broadcasting off of an MP3 rather than a, a wave or an AIF file. And, and I, I, who was I talking to? I was talking to someone recently about the exact same thing. And they're like, oh yeah. Oh, a college, um, we're doing a um, state of music sharing white paper we've done all this research and i was doing the interviews um and i was talking to someone in toronto who works at a college radio station he's like oh yeah we just play mp3s and i'm like what like you know so it it, i I was shocked by that i thought because when i started sending files it was always web files it was never never anything else and this guy was saying to me oh yeah like a 320 mp3 is fine and i'm like what I think that's unfortunate, but who knows? Yeah, well, a lot of it has to do with ease of use, ease of access. It's, you know, sometimes there's a a file size limit. You know, there's lots of reasons I can see them doing that, but this makes it easy, right? Yeah, and I think what what I think is unfortunate is this imbalance between like headphones are getting much better and, you know, data is getting cheaper, but we're going in this direction where it's all MP3, MP3s for for so for the exchange of audio, and and it'd be great if we could get it to where there's a bit more of a balance. Because I even notice the fidelity of listening to Spotify now versus four or five years ago, based on the headphones, the quality of it, it has improved. In my mind, has improved a lot. I'm like, oh my god, this sounds way better than when I had um, files on my computer. So. I hope it continues in a direction where it's where it improves instead of the the tech gets better and the quality of the audio file goes down. Who's the audience, the main audience for Beta? Everyone from a bedroom artist all the way up to the largest record companies in the world. Because if you think about it, anybody in the ecosystem, they're sending and receiving digital audio. Music is the currency. And artists need to get their, you know, what is it? 60,000 tracks are uploaded to spotify every day yeah i got i was interviewed in forbes last year and the quote in there the number was forty thousand, and it's gone up this year it's now 60 so everybody is dealing with this challenge and the challenge is compared to when i worked at that independent record label it was that was about getting your music to people now it's easy to get your music to people but how do they know it exists Mm. and the way you do that is building up profile getting in touch with people looking for support gene people up ultimately and so everybody needs to do that from the smallest of artists to the largest record companies in the world they just have different needs because they're on a different part of the timeline mark what's the pricing schedule like for there's a free version where the links expire automatically after seven days and a lot of cases that's good for most people because they're just swapping files back and forth but it goes all the way up to 15 bucks for a creator account. So if you just need a little upload storage, and then if you need watermarking, there's two more price plans. And the watermarking is to avoid piracy then, right? 
Yeah, I would say it's a tough one on the piracy thing. It's more to what it is. Watermarking is in an inaudible watermark file that if the file gets leaked somewhere and you can get a hold of it, you can scan the file to find out who you sent it to. And it, what it is, is it's encouraged to encourage people ultimately these days to not forward on tracks to people because it's not necessarily about the piracy thing. It's more about that. You know what it's like. The one thing artists have is their narrative. So their release narrative, what their plans are, and if you send something out to someone and they pass it on to someone else and they pass it on to someone else, you lose control of that narrative. And so you're not maybe not necessarily worry about the, worried about the money you're going to lose because people mostly do listen on Spotify and Apple Music and Deezer. It's more that people are hearing things before you want them to. And so I see watermarking now as a way to discourage sharing of music before it's released. Yeah, you're losing control of the event of the marketing event more than anything. Exactly. And and if you look at big artists like who do those sudden album drops, that's they're in my mind that's why they're doing it is to make sure that they can control the rollout of their album. And I think even if you're a very small artist, you might not be worried about piracy, but you want to think about what's your plan, how am I going to let people know what I'm doing and when I'm releasing my music. So Again, somebody like Beyonce maybe has a different strategy, but even a smaller artist needs to be thinking they have these events and that, that's how you bring that's how you bring attention to yourself by focusing interest around certain events. And that's so different than the way it used to be with the sudden drops, where once upon a time, as you know, there was, you know, a six week, eight week run up to the release of an Build album. Build to release. Yeah. Build to release, heaven forbid. No, I know. Like it's the way things are done now is it's complete. It's completely changed. It's completely changed, uh, and I think it's challenging for artists to figure out what to do because they sort of. I'm sure you've written some half of your books are about this. That there's you know the whole artist playbook's gone out the window. It's like what do you, what do you do now? There are certain things that you need to focus on, but I think it's overwhelming for newer artists that they don't exactly know which steps to take. And it keeps on evolving. It's hard to write about because about the time you finish something, it's changed somewhere along the line. So every year there seems to be a new nuance to it that wasn't there before. I'd actually be curious about what you think about this because it is evolving and it's changing rapidly. But the same, the, the game remains the same, I feel, in some ways that that you, I wrote a blog post about this, this idea of here and there is that you're, you're in a certain place, be it you as a manager trying to help an artist or an artist trying to get going. And you need to visualize where you need to go there being somewhere because not all artists, I, and I think this has always been the case. Not all artists are going to have the same career path. They're not going to end up doing the same things. The timing might be different, but I don't know what you think, but I, it, it feels to me like that's always been the challenge. It's just the factors at play have sort of changed. What do you think? Well, I think one of the problems for many artists is they don't consider that at all. All they consider is, I'm making the music, now I'm finished, oh, what do I do now? Can we get it up tomorrow? Can we get it up tomorrow? Yeah, and I know <laughs> yeah. this is the case because there's two major mastering houses near me. Of course, they're dealing with the finished product of albums. 
And I go talk to him sometimes, and every single time this comes up, I I did this great album, and (laughs) people don't know what to do with it. So you'd figure in this time that we have where there's so much information on self-promotion, so much information on marketing, and yet there are many artists that don't consider any of that. A challenge I find is, so coming from a music background, working in a, you know, a music, music tech background, I find tech is very good for exchanging information. I think there's a lot of open, you know, they're big on open source. So, you know, open source software, free, license free, uh, all that kind of stuff, or free use software. But in music, I, I and this is another reason we started HowWeListen.org that came out of this interview series, is that people aren't as free with the information in the music business, I find, as they are in the tech world. I find that people, it's it's hard to find good, reliable information. Like I think, say, for example, if you go to a conference, you see a lot of people talking from their perspective because they're consultants or whatever. And I don't, you know, slight that in any way, but it's it's difficult because people are looking to work with newer artists. Whereas a lot of the time, I'm like, oh, you, you totally just need to Google it and then DIY, do it yourself. And, and then as soon as you don't need that, this is a classic booking agent story. When do I get a booking agent? Well, they'll start knocking as soon as you don't need one anymore. Yeah. And I, you know, so what you're saying about artists not thinking about that, I don't know if they know they need to think about that in the same way. I think it's that unknown, unknown to a lot of artists. Yeah, I agree, which is pretty amazing considering the world we live in. And there's so much information floating out there and you'd think that some of it would stick. <laughs> well, you've got, well, you learn very quickly or you give up. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a metaphor for uh, uh, many things in life that you can make what you think is the best album and you realize it's actually crap and you're good at marketing or you realize you're bad at marketing, but the album's really good or you realize you're bad at both. But then if you turn out to be good at both, then it's game on. And I think artists need to, it's like anything else. You need to try different things and experiment, I think, ultimately. Mark, last question. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or somebody imparted to you? Uh, oh, <laughs> I'll tell you what. I like, I love watch. I, like I watch loads of stuff on Instagram and you know, there was, do you know who Rick Ross is? Yeah. That he's quite a big rapper and he, and, in this video, he's got like an amazing accent. I don't know if he's from Philadelphia or something, but he, because he was in a Meek Mill video anyway. And so, you know, when you see him rapping, he's quite intense. And and in this video, I only saw it a week ago. And he's talking about how the coach can't believe want it more than the player. Mm. <laughs> and, and he's, and then the way he says, he says passion repeatedly. He's talking like, you have to have a passion for what you do. And the way he says passion is so engaging. Um, so I love the fact that he has this strong, maybe a serious attitude in the videos. But when he's talking about sort of what it takes to be in music and to do that is this I, like idea that it's about passion. You have to want, you have to want it. And I think that's something I've seen recently that I thought about it. And it makes complete sense that you've got to want to achieve something maybe in music or whatever you're doing for yourself. You can't, or as a manager, even you can't want it more than the than the uh, artist wants it. Did that? That I think there is a very um, strong connection between those two things: a drive to 
be successful, whatever success means to you, because it, it's very different other people to, or to other people. But yeah, I, I think that's a good piece. <laughs> Rick Ross is the most recent good piece of business advice, yes. What's the site that you were just talking about? So bita.com, B-Y-T-A.com, and then, uh, which is the tool. And then we have this other site called howwelisten.org, all one word. And that's sort of the knowledge side to what we do, because what happened was, we realized all these people need to send and receive digital audio, but they need to understand why they have to do it and what it's like reaching out to people and building a team. And that's what it's all about is exploring those counter narratives, encouraging people to uh, learn to do things for themselves, DIY. You can find out more about Mark and Beta at beta.com. That's B-Y-T-A dot com and howwelisten.org. That's howwelisten, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find an Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.